2: Just talking away, looking at my phone, realising that last time I used Skype was to talk to a load of ISIS members, so it's full of ISIS contacts, which is very weird to see.
3: Hello, and you're very welcome along to this week's episode of the group chat podcast from Virgin Media News, although not really much of a group as it is this week, because it is just me, political correspondent Gavin Riley, and news correspondent Zara King. Zara, Hello. how are you?
0: And we're going to have people join the group chat. Well, We are. Again. No, first, it's we going have, to be a fairly,
3: fairly revolving door of contributors coming in and out this week. Yes. Uh, no Richard again this week. Richard is still enjoying some much needed or and or, uh, so he's going to be back with us uh, before Tuesday. He's having
0: a ball. We're getting updates in the group chat. Yeah, he's having a very good time. He's like, having a
3: distressingly <laughs> nice time. He but. sends
0: you all his warm regards there. Yeah.
3: He does. <laughs> um, anyway, we do have a really busy podcast. We're going to get straight into it this week. Um, Zara, first of all, how was your long weekend?
0: Good. I enjoyed it. And I have to say the extra bank holiday. Uh, very, very nice. How about yourself?
3: Yeah, um, very much crept up on us, despite us talking about it last week. Uh, it there was the discussion about whether it felt like a Saturday or a Sunday, which grew an awful lot of
0: legs. It grew a lot. It got a great reaction. It I would did. Say. It, it did. And we, we will come
3: back to that in a couple of minutes. <laughs> uh, but first of all, um, this being a news podcast, we do like yes. to talk about other podcasts where appropriate. And actually, you yes. have been... Loving gobbling up a new BBC Sounds podcast. Tell us about it.
0: Yeah, so actually I'm not a monster. This is series two, Gav, but um, series one was actually recommended to me by cameraman Vinny Broderick, one of our faves. Uh, Vinny had said to me, have you heard this podcast? It's so brilliant. And season two is out now and it focuses on the Shamima Begum story. So for those of you who might not remember, Shamima Begum was one of the three Bethnal Green schoolgirls who left London in February of 2015 to travel to Syria to join ISIS. So um, at the time, obviously, it was a huge story because how would three schoolgirls, you know, leave their school, literally, to go and join mm. a terrorist group. So um, Josh Baker is the filmmaker and journalist behind the I'm Not a Monster series. Phenomenal journalist. I'm very excited for us to talk to him in a couple of minutes because he's going to give us a little bit of an insight into how he goes about telling these stories, Gav. I mean, like, one of the most important things that I think we're going to learn from Josh today is the idea of verification and fact-checking mm. and looking into the accounts and the story as told by Shamima Begum and establishing what is fact and what is fiction. So we're going to get a bit more detail on that. But first, let's take a listen to I'm Not
2: a Monster. I'm curious about how you think people perceive you.
1: As, As a danger, as a risk, as a potential risk to them, to their safety, to their way of living. I'm not a bad person. I'm not this person that they think I am being perceived as in the media. You know, I'm just so much more than ISIS and I'm so much more than everything that I've been through. But do you
2: understand why society has so much anger towards you?
1: Yes, I do understand. But I don't think it's actually towards me. I think it's towards ISIS, but... when they think of ISIS, they think of me because I've been put on the media so much. But they only did that because you chose to go
2: to ISIS
1: but what was there to obsess over? We went to ISIS, that was it, it was over. It was over and done with, what more is there to say? Like they just wanted to continue the story because it was a story, it was the big story.
2: But you do accept that you did join a terrorist group?
1: Yes, I
0: did. Uh, Josh Baker is the filmmaker behind this and podcast creator and he joins us now on the line uh, to tell us a bit about the work that went into this Josh phenomenal journalism from you in terms of you know Shimima Begum has been interviewed so many times but in terms of actually verifying what she's been telling you you went into the weeds of this to fact check every detail that she's given in all of those interviews.
2: Oh, totally. I mean, we were very lucky in the sense that, as you say, that there's been a lot said about Shamima Begum, but so little is really known about what happened. And Shamima Begum decided to give uh, give me what she says is her full account of everything that's happened over the last eight years, which is the first time she's done that. So once we got that account, we were like, great, but then it was sort of like, hold on, how do we know what the truth is here? And so we've spent more than a year now. Uh, unpicking it, finding out when she's being honest and finding out when she's trying to hide things.
0: And it was interesting. So I was just to give our listeners a bit of a recap in case they're not totally familiar. She leaves Bethnal Green in 2015 in February, Josh. Just maybe give us a quick synopsis of her time. It was four years in total she spent in ISIS. What happened
2: in those four years? A lot. Yeah, exactly. So sort of going back to the beginning. So Shamima Begum... Uh, in February 2015, leaves London with two school friends. They fly to Turkey, they pass through Turkey, enter Syria and join the uh, Islamic State group, join ISIS. Once there, all the girls marry and sort of it's not until uh, February of 2019 when only one of the girls emerges from the ashes of the ISIS caliphate and that's Shamima Begum. And then she's thrown back into the sort of media spotlight. Now, that's sort of her journey, if you will. And what we've been doing is unpicking the different parts of it. So, for instance, we've discovered, you know, the reasons why she left. We've discovered that she was taken through Turkey with the help of a Canadian spy, believe it or not. And we've also gone to Raqqa, Syria, the city she lived in, and sort of retraced her life there.
3: Um, this is a story, Josh, which you might never have intended to be in at the ground floor, so to speak. But this is a story that you found yourself covering <laughs> almost from from day one of Shemaima Begum and her friends uh, leaving Bethnal Green in the first place.
2: Oh, yeah, no, you're completely right. So back in the day, I was actually working in East London Mosque uh, with a friend of mine, and we were making a film about the community. And it sort of just so happened that one morning when we were trying to negotiate filming something random... three girls from the community had gone missing. And we're like, oh, wow, what's what's this? And it turned out to be Shamima Begum and her friends. And the mosque sort of became a focal point, not only for the families of these girls, but for the community and indeed the media. And what happened was that we sort of ended up having an almost front row seat to a lot of the events that were unfolding. So fast forward seven years later, when I'm in Syria doing something unrelated, I get a chance to sit down with Shamima Begum. She's familiar with some of the work, believe it or not, from series one, because a lot of ISIS members apparently listen to that. Uh, And uh, we got chatting and that's how she came to give me her story, really.
0: And it was interesting, Josh, when you talk about a young girl being radicalised, really, it was the close friendship that she had with a school friend that really led to her eventually deciding to travel, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, you're completely right. So in essence, I mean, let me break that into two. So Shamima Begum said to me, there are two reasons why she left. The first is that she consumed uh, IS propaganda, which she said led her to believe that there was a sort of utopia waiting for her in Syria. Um, Now, obviously, she would have had to ignore a lot of the violent brutality that was being talked about in the media at the time. And she says she did because she was in love with the idea of going to ISIS. But as you say, most importantly, her best friend, someone she describes as a sister, a, a lady called Sharmina, had already gone and was sending her messages telling her, look, come, it's brilliant, you'll love it here, even feeding her some of the contacts that she would need to be able to, to make it to the Islamic State.
3: Without putting too fine a point in it, Josh, without offering too much of a spoiler uh, for the ongoing season two, which is still available at BBC Sounds or wherever people uh, get their podcasts, um, if she was sold this idea of um, the caliphate being a utopia. In truth, how did it turn out for a young, unaccompanied 15-year-old British girl arriving there?
2: Uh, So there are points where she says it did reflect the utopia that she she expected very briefly but actually for the most part it turned out to be uh, I would say very brutal as you might expect and the dream that she thought she was going to very much did not exist and so what we've done is we've sort of gone to Raqqa, we've located the man that she was married to, we've located people that knew of her in Isis or came across her and we've sort of retraced that stage of her life Uh, and along the way we reveal uh, possibly some things she wouldn't want you to know, but also some things that I think provide important context to, to how we understand this story.
0: And all of this played out last night in the television aspect of this, which was the documentary on BBC Two. It was an hour and a half long and um, we thoroughly enjoyed it. It was so detailed, but even just down Thanks, to guys. the access to the footage. I mean, so we like on the podcast, we're journalists as well. We like to try and break the fourth wall a little bit. I was just blown away by the type of footage that you were able to get from inside Racco. Was that difficult to source that, Josh?
2: I went and shot it all. Oh. Uh, so apart from, the, uh, apart from uh, a couple of clips from 2014 and 2015 that we, we saw through an extensive archive network, we went, I went to Raqqa and uh, extensively shot and stayed in the city for probably just under a, a month in total, um, going to other places as well. But it was uh, quite an extensive shooting process. It's also quite an emotional shooting process because parts of the city are you know very destroyed and um the remains of human beings are still there to be found so it's very it was a very draining but also important shoot i think
3: um in truth josh and again without spoiling too much of the work how do you go about even trying to fact check or deconstruct some of what Shemaima begum has Mm -mm. told you and to try and establish objectively whether she's telling the whole truth or not
2: i mean so the first thing i have to do is is suspend my personal beliefs you know Uh, I am somebody that spent the last few years talking to survivors of ISIS's atrocities, and perhaps less importantly, myself, I'm full of shrapnel from an ISIS suicide bombing. So I'm very aware of what this group perpetrated. Um, But I, uh, I basically, the first thing I want in any investigation is a timeline. I want to understand what our start point is and what our end point is and then try to work out geographically everything that happened in between that. Because if you know where somebody was, then you have the ability to potentially find people who saw them there and validate parts of their stories. But then it's also those old journalistic questions of who, what, where, when, how and why. And I'm always trying to answer those things. But the framework for it starts with a timeline and then you go from there.
0: And that question that people will ask as they watch the documentary is whether or not to believe her and whether or not, you know, when we talk about her British citizenship being revoked and what actually happens next for her, what do you think the feedback has been from the British public even since the documentary aired last night?
2: Well, I suppose there's a couple of points. I mean, very good question. There's a couple of things I'd say there. So first of all, whether or not whether to believe her. You know, there are definitely points where Shamima is avoiding giving me a straight answer or indeed withholding or concealing things. Uh, But there are also points where she is, I would say, honest to a detriment. Uh, You know, I think it is a pretty full-on statement to admit you were in love with the idea of going Mm. to ISIS other things that she says. So you kind of get the whole range of the Shamima Begum experience. And I would always say that Shamima Begum, in our conversations, is kind of three people. She is the naive 15-year-old who packed mintero chocolate to go to Syria because she thought it was a priority. She is the girl who had her formative years inside a terror state. Uh, and has got a blunt single-mindedness on some things. I mean, she can be very blunt and very fierce sometimes. But then also she's the woman who has been living in a detention camp for the last four years and reflecting on the decisions and has lost three children and had two miscarriages. So you get all of those different personalities playing out in one hit. Now, in terms of the British public's reaction, you know, I'm not a mad fan of Twitter, but what's been incredible is... Uh, I expected to get a lot of abuse. And actually what I've been getting are people being like, "Okay, though, actually, this is important. Uh, This is allowed and provide a context to the story. I think there are some people who are further entrenched into their perspective, whichever that is. And there are also some people are like, "Okay, actually, this person has suffered quite a lot, hasn't she?
0: It's interesting, Josh. You know, when you talk about her kind of almost being honest to a fault, there are points, isn't there, where you kind of go, God, I can't believe she's actually like admitting that or saying that. Even, you know, when you asked her about, you know, was there ever a point in the journey across the border or into Syria where you thought maybe like you'd turn around and go home? She was like, no no like she was very much honest about being in love with that and then when you talk about the other end of the journey as she's coming out and she's lost as you say three children in really tragic circumstances and she talks about her daughter sort of um at the time being her purpose to live but there is almost sort of a a cold acceptance to what happened there isn't there like you know you almost expect her to break down in those moments and she doesn't
2: no and i think this is a really interesting point right so uh we often as human beings have expectations about how we expect people to react or behave in certain conversations. You know, just you know, it's a bit of a left field example. If you go on YouTube and look at actors telling soldiers war stories, you've got the soldier telling it and then you've got the actor acting it and they're dramatically different visual facial expressions. Mm. And I think one of the things that we have with Shamima Begum is that she doesn't behave how we expect or how we would like her to sometimes. And sometimes we assign meaning to that that may not be there. Other times I think it's a little bit obvious sometimes when she's telling a lie, uh, you know, and the way that she reacts. But I think the the difficulty with Shemima is she is somebody that has been through an awful lot of trauma. Now, this is regardless of what you think about her, whether she should come home, stairway, away, whether she's evil, whether she's a victim. She has been through a lot of trauma. And that impacts how you speak about those things. I mean, I've spent a prolonged period in combat and war. And, you know, I imagine how I speak about those events is, is perhaps not as emotional or, or, or as full on as people might expect.
3: And that double sided or even to a way triple sided figure, it must be even compounded by the fact that you know that when you're talking to her about the story of how she managed to get across Europe and then get across an international border as an unaccompanied minor, that you are talking to someone who is 23 years old now and is is an adult, but is talking about a time when they were 15 years old and deeply impressionable as well.
0: Josh, before we let you go, I suppose look, there will be people listening who might say, oh, we haven't heard of ISIS for a really long time. Have they gone away? I mean, you've done a lot of work and in investigation into ISIS. Where are they now and what are they at? Are they regrouping? Are they planning for the future?
2: Yeah, I mean, ISIS, ISIS uh, are still very much there. Uh, they are, they control parts of Syria. They operate in parts of Iraq. You know, they are not that their state, so to call it, their so-called state is gone. You know, we have to remember this is a group that once controlled an area the size of Britain. Uh, but it is, that's gone, but the group is still very much there. Uh, still carries out attacks on a daily basis in Syria and uh, is very much still a threat. And I actually would I would say this to you as a last thought. Um, you know, security professionals, uh, conservative MPs in this country have said similar things to me. You know, at the end of the day, we have to decide how we assess the notion of a threat. So there are currently thousands of people held in makeshift detention camps in northeast Syria who were with ISIS from as many as 56 nations. Now, they've sort of been left there or the world works out what to do with them. The problem is, is they escape they regroup with ISIS. There are children who have born there that only know the ideology of ISIS. And everybody has described that to me as a ticking bomb that we're going to have to deal with at some point. And Shimuma Begum is one of those people that's right there in the middle of it. Uh, it's, so leaving people there doesn't necessarily make us safer. Yeah, it's mm. a sobering
3: thought, but it's a worthwhile one in which to finish yeah. up. Uh, the podcast is called I'm Not a Monster and it's released uh, weekly on BBC Sounds and its creator is Josh Baker. Josh, thanks so much for joining Josh, us this week. thanks on a million. Chat. Thanks, really uh, enjoyed thanks. the chat. Now, of course, it's very difficult to talk about anything that's been in the news this week without focusing on the uh, really extraordinary and absolutely powering events from southern Turkey and northern Syria, a series of earthquakes, which at the time of recording have left a confirmed 11,000 people dead. And in truth, that's a number which is likely only to rise in the days and weeks to come, given the number of people that are still unaccounted for. And as the rescuers try to sift through uh, the remains of so many tens of thousands of buildings uh, in the area. Uh, we're going to speak to somebody from UNICEF in Syria in just a moment. But before we do that, Zara, you've been speaking this week uh, to mm-hmm. people on the ground from uh, Goal, of course, an Irish humanitarian body.
0: Yeah, Gav. So Derek O'Rourke is the regional security advisor for Goal um, in the Middle East. And we were speaking to him this week about everything that's unfolded. And one of the things that kind of struck me about that conversation was that for Goal, they have around 1200 people working on the ground between Turkey and Syria. And actually, very sadly, they're confirming that a number of their own workers on the ground have died in the earthquake and others uh, remain unaccounted for. Um, And it's just very, very sad for them. They are in a situation at the moment where um they want to be able to help, but they are actually in need of help themselves in a lot of cases. They're currently scrambling to try and see how they can get themselves back up and running because, of course, a lot of their aid workers are completely homeless now. Mm. Those that have cars are living in their cars and those that don't have shelter are really struggling. They're coming to terms with losing basically everything their whole lives. So it's been um a really challenging time for Go, but still they continue to try and put themselves in a position where they can help others and that's definitely been a priority for them. Um but even other things, if you think about it, um their office has been destroyed. They don't have a base to work from. Um the warehouse where they keep a lot of the humanitarian aid, they're still at the time when I spoke to Derek were trying to establish how is what kind of shape was the warehouse in, um what kind of condition was that in and could they actually salvage any of the materials inside that warehouse. So um, Um, You know, when we talk about these agencies and the work that they do, they are uh, unbelievable. And and it is the support of Irish people, obviously, who fund Mm -hmm. these agencies. Um, But they themselves find themselves caught up in the middle of this at the moment. So um, I would say Derek, you know, really dignified and poised in in the depths of this crisis. But you could certainly tell from this conversation that he was incredibly upset. And we can take a listen to some of that now.
4: Our priority has been to um, establish um the status of of all our staff we have uh, a massive program in northwest syria and a, and, and a very large program in in southern turkey um i um, we have over a thousand uh staff in in syria and over 250 in turkey so you can imagine it's been incredibly difficult um to try and account for all of those staff which is what we've been doing um and 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 the situation for our staff is 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 awful pretty much every everyone has been made homeless um we've accounted for most of our staff at this time but we are still trying to reach uh, staff in both antakya in southern turkey and uh, across idlib in northern syria we know that we have staff um under rubble and uh, we're trying to get to them and we're trying to uh, ensure that 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 they uh, that they can be rescued. One of the more difficult problems with Antakya at the moment is is that it's 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 not easy to reach. Roads, as you can imagine, have been have been very very badly damaged. There's no uh, the airport is is, is closed. Uh, the nearest nearest airport is uh, functioning is in Adana, um, I think, um, and so for us to get support into our teams into Antakya. this is what we're trying to do we're finding it incredi- incredibly difficult um and then once we've managed to gather ourselves and 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 start responding to the to the to the crisis at large um you know we're going to have incredible difficulties with supply chain with logistics um especially in northwest syria uh how how we get stuff into Northwest Syria to respond is is another matter at the moment we're trying to assess our premises our offices in Antakya have been destroyed uh, so we don't have a central location to work from there our offices and our warehouses in 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 Syria we're trying to assess the damage that's been done to them it's it's not looking good
0: and in your time Derek have you ever seen anything like this particular incident I suppose there everything is unique in its own way but how, how would you describe this compared to
4: everything else you've seen in your career? Um, I, I i the last 36 hours have been have been um have been devastating um there's staff that i that I've been working with for for nine ten years and um just trying to ascertain that they're safe that their families are safe and 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 you know it's i'm talking about 1250 odd odd people and 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 just taking them as safe off of a list and, and and getting increasingly worried about the ones that we can't uh, reach. Um, you know, we've, we've had crises before the entire Syria uh, situation has been a crisis, a decade long crisis, but nothing like this, nothing like this. this I'm, t- I'm talking about over a thousand of our staff who are homeless and who are hurt and who are mourning. we, we we have bereavements. We we've lost. We've lost staff. I cannot confirm how how many we've lost, but I know we have lost uh, colleagues. And we we can't reach other colleagues. We don't know if they're safe. We don't know if they're okay. We know that certain people are under rubble. We're trying to get to them. We're trying to get them out. Search and rescue, especially in northern Syria, is extremely limited. There's a fuel crisis. Heavy machinery is sometimes there, but isn't fueled. There's no electricity. It's, 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 I haven't ever seen anything like it. And um, it's 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 just awful.
3: Uh, we're on the lines by Eva Hins, who is the Director of Communications with UNICEF. She's joining us from uh, the Syrian capital of Damascus. Uh, Eva, thanks so much for joining us uh, this week on the group chat. Um, in truth, it's very difficult to know exactly where to start. So you might just, first of all, just bring us up to speed on what UNICEF has been doing since the first quakes.
1: I think you make an excellent point that it is quite difficult to, to know where we are at the moment because this is a fluid situation. Uh, the earthquake happened on, on Monday morning and still it's an evolving situation. Uh, the death toll, uh, very sadly, is still uh, rising. Uh, we don't have uh, exact figures on, on where we land in terms of how many uh, people have been killed or, or injured. Uh, it's it's terrible. Uh, as UNICEF, we fear that thousands of children might have lost their lives um, in the in the earthquake. Uh is the most powerful earthquake uh, that's hit the region in in years and of course it's it's the worst possible outcome for uh, particularly for children uh, the situation here already prior to the earthquake was very dire uh, that they were grappling with number of issues uh, before that and for for the moment uh, what we know and what the team is seeing on the ground we see uh, thousands of homes that have been destroyed thousands of schools health care centers, uh, these different places that offer the uh, essential services that children so desperately need. Uh, the earthquake happened in the middle of the night, so uh, people had to flee their uh, homes and houses. Uh, then uh, very scary for, of course, for children, uh, even for, for adults. Uh, and many are not able to return home, so they are uh, in temporary shelters. Uh, many in schools that's been uh, closed or, or other, other places. So it's, uh, uh, it's looking quite grim at the moment.
0: And you mentioned there already, like these are children who have already been through an enormous uh, trauma over the last couple of years. These are children who come from a war in a conflict zone. Um, You know, how do you envisage them moving forward from this?
1: It's very difficult. It's uh, it's nearly 12 years of of conflict, uh, massive displacements, meaning that many of these children have uh, been forced to move a number of times during the conflict years. Uh, It's the deepening economic crisis, uh, which means that uh, prices are skyrocketing. It's difficult for their parents and, and loved ones to uh, to support and uh, take care of them so everyday life is is, is difficult uh, cholera hit um, only a few months ago and now the the earthquake so it is uh, it's a surmountable task and it's it is difficult to uh, uh, for for the children here and and as well as for the families and uh, uh, I'm uh, presuming that this will be the situation moving forward uh, for the months to come. So it, it is a very difficult situation at the moment.
3: You've just addressed it there a little bit, Eva, but just to, to flesh that out a little bit more for our audience this week, um, what exactly was UNICEF doing on the ground in the area before uh, the events of the last three days? Because as you mentioned, it, it wasn't exactly uh, an ideal uh, set of circumstances that children in that area were facing even before the earthquake.
1: No, not at all. Uh, we are we are based here in in, in country, and we are working in a number of areas. And we're doing so uh, uh, before uh, the earthquake uh, this Monday. Uh, we have big programs on on providing safe and clean water, uh, good sanitation uh, uh, for children, as well as um, uh, healthcare and, and good nutrition services. Uh, similarly, making sure that more children have the chance to uh, to go to school and and, and learn. Uh, big programs as well in in the areas of uh, child protection. These are just few examples that, um, of the areas of work that, uh, that we are doing. And now, of course, um, the work continues and uh, we are just uh, gearing up to, to do more and, and particularly in the areas where uh, uh, children have been affected by the earthquake.
0: Neva, how are your staff coping? Because we've heard from other aid agencies, including the Irish Agency Goal, that sadly some of their own uh, workers on the ground were killed in this earthquake. Have you, as UNICEF, had to count the human cost of this as well for your own teams on the ground?
1: Thankfully, all our staff is is safe. uh, So no one has lost their lives, but there are colleagues who've lost their homes. uh, So it is very difficult. And of course, these colleagues as well... um, uh this is where where their home is this is where their lives are so they they go through the same as as many of the uh the children and the families we are trying to help so uh, they experience firsthand uh, how difficult it is and and how devastating is
3: Um, On a practical level, Eva, when you're dealing with a humanitarian disaster, the likes of which you're facing right now, and of course, there are completely understandable and very worthwhile appeals around the world for people to donate towards humanitarian programmes, how difficult or how um, hard can it be? to actually get humanitarian aid onto the ground? Because it would be one thing if there had been some political uprising, but given that the situation is so grave and it's so difficult uh, to even get to these areas safely, how exactly do you go about bringing humanitarian aid to an area like this?
1: Uh, from our side, from UNICEF's side, uh, we are building on, on the work that we are, we are doing. Uh, we work here um, with a number of partners, we work with local authorities. So, so we are building on the existing work uh, the existing practices, the ex- existing experience that we have. And I think uh, um, in the middle of uh, of all these bad news, I think that's uh, a bit of good news that we have that in place and, and we can uh, capitalise on that.
3: And final question for you, Eva, and, and I'm sure given a time like this that it, it is not going to be at the forefront of people's minds, but just as some encouragement for people who may have some reluctance sending any aid towards Syria because they may have some concerns about the conflict in Syria for the last 12 years they may have problems with Bashar al-Assad and his government and his administration and they may feel a little bit uneasy about sending any money that might legitimize his stance in the country i i, I imagine your message will be that now is not a time to try and make political judgments about what's going on for
1: for us yeah, we are here for the children uh, that's our um, that's our mandate we are here for uh... For every child in the country uh, um, and we aim to help as many as we can and um, I would encourage to uh, uh, people to if you can uh, to, to support that.
3: Um, Eva Hins uh, we will let you go I know you, you're you're very much under pressure there but we very much appreciate your time joining us this week on the group chat. Eva Hins a uh, director of communications with UNICEF joining us from Damascus in Syria. Eva thanks so much for joining us this Thank week. Thank you Eva really appreciate
0: it.
4: Welcome
3: back to the group chat. Uh, this week, we want to talk a little bit about matters sporting, uh, which is not usually uh, something that we discuss much on the group chat. But there are some things that are happening in sports world, which aren't necessarily happening uh, on the pitch. Um, it's all very complicated. And it all involves Manchester City and potential breaches of the rules that soccer clubs are supposed to honour uh, when they're generally trying to compete on a level playing field with everyone else. Uh, We've decided that it's a bit too complicated for us to try and get to the bottom of, so we've drafted in Will Dalton from Virgin Media Sport, who's now looking quite (laughs) awkward (laughs) and put under pressure very suddenly to try and get to the bottom of all this. Uh, Will, thank you for dropping into the group chat. Uh, First of all, before we talk about exactly what Manchester City are alleged to have done, explain to us what the financial rules are that soccer clubs in England are supposed to live by anyway.
5: Well, look, this dates back to about 2009 when UEFA decided to bring in rules and laws to try and make football clubs... Responsible for the way they garnered their finances. So they weren't meant to spend more money than they were, you know, bringing in on a match day revenue, merchandise, all these sort of things. Now, it took a few years for it to be kind of set in stone. And even then, it was always felt that it really didn't have any real teeth. Now, we were talking earlier, you can trace this all the way back to the likes of Leeds United in the early 2000s when they spent far too much money than they were bringing in. And UEFA recognized this and saw that a lot of clubs could fall foul to this. and essentially go out of business, which Leeds United nearly did. Going past that, then you had the big revolution of kind of sports teams like Chelsea, Manchester United, Liverpool with foreign owners coming in, spending lots of money again. And your wife had just thought, right, this isn't a good format for clubs to operate on. You're spending wildly more money than you have. This could really ruin football all across Europe. But the big problem was that Europe is obviously such a vast place, so many different legal systems. How do you enforce this? Mm. And this has been the problem that has been kind of over the past few years. People just don't really feel that financial fair play does the job it's meant to have. Manchester City, we're going to talk about in a few minutes, they've already fallen fell to this before. But they brought a case to the Court of Arbitration for Sport in Lausanne. And essentially, the ruling was overruled. Okay. So, you know, they didn't, you know, they weren't brought back into the fold with that. And a lot of clubs, I think, are slightly jealous of okay. that ruling. We might come
3: back to that ruling, actually. Yeah. So that might be germane to what we're talking about now. But as regards this uh, investigation that's now been instigated by the Premier League, um, it was a pretty hefty thing. I had a, qu- a quick glance at the press release and there's like 100 different alleged rules that they say may have been breached over a long period of time. So in as basic as you can say, what is it that City are alleged to have done?
5: Oh, listen, there's there's a good few different categories, but to run through a few of them. It's to do with managers' contracts, players' contracts, essentially hiding financial accounting, not being true and honest about exactly what their accounts had, uh, and then also not aiding the investigation into this. And it's it's really strange, yeah, because we all knew about this investigation, obviously in the sporting world mm. and you know, but it was done very, very kind of quietly. You usually hear some sort of rumors or stories coming out of it. There wasn't much. And kind of a lot of people thought, well, this is the same thing again. You know, what happened a few years ago at Man City, it'll be the same thing again. And then all of a sudden, at the start of the week, it was this huge headline of Manchester City are in really big trouble. And it seems to be that way because the guys who were investigating this seem to be really confident in the evidence they have that will essentially, you know, Man City won't be able to get away with.
0: And when we say big trouble will, what does that mean? What are the consequences of this?
5: Oh, well, see, this is the thing. It's, it's almost kind of a new thing. So a commission has been set up to look into this from the Premier League. From what I understand as well is they can't go to the court of arbitration for sport this time. So it will be this commission who decides what happens. It could be anything. It could be as little as a fine, shall we say, and I don't put that in a light terms, but for Manchester City and the money they have, that the might fine not wouldn't do be enough. Be no, it won't be. All, yeah. It could be points deductions, which would obviously hurt them. It could be relegation. You know, We have heard of leaks from other Premier League clubs already this week saying they want Man City thrown out of the league if they've been found to do this. Even their manager, Pep Guardiola, said... Couple of years ago, if we were found to have done something wrong, I'll walk away from the club. Mm-hmm. You could then see the likes of want to be the public face of something exactly. that's not above board. You know, who knows then about contracts whether they become null and void? The likes of Erling Haaland, Kevin De Bruyne, could they walk away? The, the oh. financial ramifications, sponsorship-wise, for the club if they were to be relegated, which would be, I think, the real big thing um, that's happened to Man City before they have gone down through the leagues before these multi-millionaire owners took over. Mm. So. Yeah, it's worrying times, I think, if you're a Man City fan.
3: You mentioned the the previous case that they brought to the Court of Operation for Sport, which is like an independent Supreme Court for, for sporting matters. Um, they won that appeal, which I think was, broadly speaking, because the investigation was basically time-limited, that it's sort of gone beyond the limit by which they had to investigate these things. Does that then mean that City have already basically answered the case that they're now being asked to face again?
5: Well, this seems to be a different Obviously, this is the Premier League rules. Um, now, when we're looking at it as well, it's different. You know, obviously, the Premier League's not in Europe anymore. So that has different ramifications for it as well. Uh, So if they can't appeal to that kind of body Mm. and they're left with the Premier League, it seems like the Premier League clubs have said, no, the commission will deal with this. We don't want to get involved. So it looks like it's fair and above board. But at the same time, there seems to be a lot of people who were, uh, slightly put out by how Man City have risen over the past few years—six Premier League titles, mm. as we've said—you um, know, loads of other silverware—and obviously they've built up the ground, the training ground, the academy. They've become a huge club. Uh, those in points the UK.
3: deductions that you mentioned as well—they mm. could potentially go back in time. So You're not just talking about points being deducted from this season. You could potentially be saying, right, go back to the season in 2012 where they won yeah. the title and goal difference, and deduct them. 10 points which means you're you're retroactively giving somebody else the title
5: then. exactly or they could just say no you're being stripped of the title we've seen this before in other leagues where uh, titles have been taken away from teams It's a really, I think, hollow victory for whoever comes second. Um, Mm. It's a bit too late, isn't it? It it is, it is. And I think that will be, I can't speak for all of those players involved, but a bit worthless to receive that medal. Mm.
0: Well, what does it mean for the fans though, Will? It's so sad for the fans really, isn't it? It's so disappointing for any Man City fan listening to this now.
5: It is, but I think fans, especially when we're talking about the Premier League and, and football, soccer, nowadays, they realise there's a big detachment from 20, 30 years ago where, you know, the owner of a club, say we go back to Blackburn, the you know, Jack mm-hmm. Walker back in the day, who had a real attachment with the fans or even, you know, up to a few weeks ago, David Gold, who just passed on, um, the owner of West Ham, he, you know, he grew up across the road from the old stadium. So there was attachment there. Now it's multi-millionaire owners who come in, who are looking to try and some have different roots. They are actually looking to make money. Some see it as something to enjoy. Uh, there's not as much attachment there anymore. You know, a lot of the owners don't come from the local area. Would they have known anything about the team 10 years previous? Who knows? So it's different. And I think fans get that. They see that football is is now this multi-million, billion pound business.
3: And and it does go back to that that tricky thing as well. And we saw this to a degree here at home with Kilmercud versus Glenn a couple of weeks ago and this dispute about, you know, whether there was more than enough players on the pitch and how you go back and resolve something
5: off the pitch, long after the event is actually ever finished up. You can't. And I think that's the simple word because I was thinking about this. And I think if you take it from the point of view of an athlete, right? These guys are all professionals. They've worked their entire lives to get to this pinnacle. You go through those, those squads of, of players who came second in any of those seasons. That might have been their one glory moment in their mm. entire career. And the glory moment is the final whistle going and... The manager or you realizing coming over and saying to you, you're now a league champion, Mm. lifting that cup. And it's all about that. The medal you get represents it. So, you know, when you look up at the cabinet, the following year, you remember that moment. That moment doesn't exist because Mm. they never got that chance. Mm. So all you can do going forward is look, right, what can we do as a body, which is the governing body, to change what's gone on, to make sure that doesn't happen again Mm. with the financial laws? as I said, spread out across Europe, if we're looking at it from a European perspective, it's so difficult. There's so many different loopholes, which we've only seen in January with the January transfer window gone past. Yeah. So there's always, I think, people trying to find ways to, I'm not saying cheat the system, but mm. find a way that they can gain an advantage.
3: And almost uh, no, certainly it'll be something which is appealed further down the line and something which we could be hearing about for years to come, I suspect. Uh, Will Dalton, Virgin Media Sport. thanks very much for explaining all of that to us. No worries. Thank you the group. Cheers, guys. Thanks, Will. Could you imagine if you'd booked a flight away for the long weekend and then you (laughs) found your city break on this wonderful new bank holiday, totally scuppered by some eejit flying a drone at the airport?
0: I mean, Egypt's a soft word for what we read. It using is. Here, I, I was going I mean, through
3: my internal lexicon trying to figure out something I could say there. Well,
0: you remember when it was happening at Gatwick and we were all like, oh my God, imagine that happening? And now it's mm. like,
3: it's very much an us problem now. So, Do you remember? Uh, well, it, it's not the first time that it's happened in Dublin. Do you remember it happened in, in Dublin around about the same time that it happened in Gatwick? Yeah. Uh, I remember having to go through. Some archives of the air traffic control radio thing because they're, they're all logged online. Oh. Trying to find the audio for a graphic sequence where they were illustrating where this drone the had been drone spotted. Was. but isn't isn't it mad that so much? I mean, we've talked before about how you know the airport is the front door of the country. <laughs> Richard's Richard going to love Chambers that mention. Bang up, and it's off It's <laughs> interesting, but that even when it's fully operational, that the whole thing can be scuppered by someone with basically. Something that's and a little more elaborate than a remote control plane.
0: Well, I was just going to say, doesn't everyone kind of have a drone now? Like, I mean, what is the... You have to have a license to have a drone though, don't you?
3: Yeah, and, and it's illegal to fly them within five miles of an airport. I right, think. OK. So, which is the obvious so Clearly issue. someone has not gotten the memo. Yeah.
0: Do we believe it's sinister or is it just uh, somebody literally out flying the drone around? It would
3: need to be a very targeted campaign for it to to, so you to, don't, to you take You don't out. think it's
0: sinister. What's Eamon Ryan said about it this week?
3: Um, that we should have no tolerance of it.
0: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we agree.
3: Uh, Amy and right. Ryan actually getting a bit of a torrid time from the airlines who are like, "Sorry, this is happening all weekend," and then you get to a Tuesday morning, yeah. anyone to convene a meeting. Uh, so it would be interesting to see whether they like they try to up the penalties for doing that, just to try and ward people off.
0: Well, uh, I have. I do believe that Gatwick has some sort of technology now where they can basically down the not like shoot them down, but I think there's some kind of where they can intercept the technology. Okay. Like a remote control. Remote control thing. them to land. So I don't know how that works. Whatever. Obviously, you know me and technology would be yeah. up there, but um. I believe Gatwick does have some kind of technology in place. Okay. I don't know if it's really expensive or what's the story with it but it sounds like it works anyway right. uh, and you can basically land I look
3: expensive. forward to inviting Eamon Ryan on for future episodes and having yeah. him explain how they're Love going that. to deal how with this, that this drone pandemic of Dublin Airport. Um, yeah. Before we go, we better pick up one of the loose ends from last week which was yeah. the chat we were having about uh, bank holidays and how great they are yeah. and whether they feel like a Saturday or a Sunday. Now I said bank holidays feel like an additional Saturday in that the Monday has no, the same but they totally feel
1: like a
0: Sunday. So you're completely wrong. There.
3: Well, this was the thing. So you, yeah. you told me I was wrong and I was like, Absolutely no, I, everyone definitely agrees with me on this. And then some Twitter polls spontaneously popped up. <laughs> nothing to do with us at all. And it turns out that um, no, I'm, I'm totally wrong. Everyone agrees with it you. It turns
0: out that I'm right and Gavin's wrong, everyone. Just just so we clear. clear. Well, um, I mean, like also, I suppose, well, like you were like last week, I'm going to be honest, like, you were definitely running for like, would we have a Friday off instead of a Monday, which I was like, you're bang on wrong there now, Gav.
3: Hang Why on, would you no,
0: have no, a
3: Friday instead of, instead of a Monday? Because a Friday would, you, would definitely Friday feel Monday. like a Saturday. Monday.
1: Monday. Okay, Darren 100%. on the floor would a Monday. Monday well.
3: No, what, what is wrong with all of you people? Uh, one person did say, <laughs> and I think maybe, maybe this is the happy medium so we can try and end on a slightly more conciliatory note. Okay. One person said that um, although the bank holiday Monday feels like a Sunday, that the actual Sunday just feels like another Saturday. It's a bonus Saturday. So it feels like you've got it's two Saturdays and yeah. then a Sunday. Now, I still feel, think the Monday feels like a Saturday. Sure you know
0: I went on Sunday actually and I had never really been is Glendalough, right? Sorry, it's totally off topic. But the traffic at Glendalough is actually shocking. 45 minutes to try and see was it the waterfall in Glendalough? Mm. Had to give up. Had to give up. 45, had to give up. Didn't even see the waterfall. 45 Tur- minutes tourists, traffic. Huh? Why, why,
3: why, why? Why would tourists go to lovely places <laughs> when you, you could be denying Zara King her <laughs> right to go somewhere nice of the weekend irrespective of whether it feels like a Saturday or a Sunday or a Monday? Uh, what does Good, Good Friday feel like to you? And oh, no, I love a good Friday now. Yeah, I but do does, that, a good does that feel like a Saturday or a Sunday? Oh. You couldn't have three consecutive gosh. Saturdays, surely.
0: If you're out the Thursday night, it feels like a Saturday.
3: Okay. Uh, I'm getting corrected in the, my ear that apparently you're talking about Paris Court, not Glen lock. So the Paris Court has the.
0: No, what? Does Glen not have a lock? Glen has a lock. Oh, so it's a lock, by definition. Okay, well, anyway, whatever okay. it has, I didn't see it. So. Uh, your,
3: your listener feedback on the water features of County Wicklow, <laughs> please to all of our various social media channels. God, someone's uh,
0: going to give out to me for that. This is uh, the Wicklow done. Tourist
3: Board are going to be sending Zara some awful swag uh, so for the next sorry. week? Um, thank you. Beautiful though, Wicklow is is lovely. The Garden love of Wicklow. Ireland uh, approved by Will Dalton. Uh, we better <laughs> stop it there. Uh, thank you to everyone who has listened this week. Thanks to everyone who's tuned in on Virgin Media too. Thank you to everyone in the gallery, to Ross, Maxine, Gareth, and Aubrey singing in this week, uh, and we look forward to seeing you back again uh, in future with Richard Chambers. Until then, for me, Gavin Riley and from Sarah King bye Uh, thanks very much for joining us and goodbye